0: Feeling stressed, left without gravity, in an environment that gets more and more complicated and complex every day? Untangle your mind and go back to the roots of clear thinking. Get the original text of the Leviathan by Hobbes, the two treatises of government by Locke, the social contract by Rousseau, plus the U.S. Constitution from Pennsylvania, bound together into just one practical book. That's right. Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, and the US Constitution bound together into just one practical book to keep your costs low.
1: So on the right you see that the Harry Potter Snitch thing, right? And then on the left here you see this incredibly peculiar alchemical image And the image is something like this. This is what this image means. It means, at the base of the world is this weird combination of matter and spirit. So this is matter and this is spirit. The winged element represents spirit. And then out of that comes something that's, like, primordial and reptilian. And then out of that comes something that's associated with consciousness. So it's, it's like a, it's a map of the way that consciousness emerges from the base of reality. Now, You'll see that this thing, and that thing The snitch and this thing is called the round chaos This thing, the snitch and the round chaos are the same thing Now in in Harry Potter When he plays Quidditch Remember Piaget had such an emphasis on games, right? Piaget believed that games were the sub-elements of human culture And Quidditch is this weird two-level game Where on one level it's sort of like soccer or basketball And then on another level You have two players that are seekers And what they seek is this snitch And the snitch is this thing that captures your attention That's why it's golden and winged and it moves around very fast It's like Mercury, the spirit Mercury Because Mercury, the god, had winged feet And he was the messenger of the gods That's that's how Mercury was conceived of And I'll tell you something else that's weird about Mercury So Mercury is a metal as well and if you mix mercury with sand, and the sand has gold in it, then the mercury will pick up the sand, and then, or the gold. And then you can heat up the mercury, and all that's left is gold. So mercury will lead you to where the gold is. And the spirit, Mercurius, the mercurial spirit, was the messenger of the gods. And if you paid attention to mercury, the god, then you'd gather the gold. But it wasn't the gold of fools, it was the gold that made your life valuable. And that's the same thing that's played out in this weird Quidditch game. The two best players, the fastest, the ones that are most awake, aren't playing the normal game. They're playing a superordinate game. And the superordinate game is, pay attention. Pay attention. And if you pay attention, then you'll get the thing that's most valuable. You win the game, but there's more than that, because in the Harry Potter series, for example, there was a piece of soul in that. And that's related to the idea that if you pay attention to what interests you what manifests itself as meaningful not only do you build the world out of that because you're differentiating something that's undifferentiated into something that's comprehensible and usable but at the same time, you're doing the same thing to yourself and that's the constructivist idea, right? It's that, well, where where do you come from? Well, you come from exploration And the generation of information and exploration. What should you explore? Well, the things that shine forth to you. That's the phenomenological idea. And the existential idea is, if you refuse to explore the things that shine forth for you, that capture your interest and your attention, then that will lessen you as a being, it'll make you weaker and progressively weaker because not only do you remain unformed but the ratio of chaos to world in your domain of being becomes too intolerable, too much chaos not enough order, not enough of you then the whole thing is unstable then you've only got two options one is that you lose belief in being itself and that's like a nihilistic reaction and the other is You turn to some sort of totalitarian or ideological solution That fills in for where you're not And that's an abdication of your individual responsibility And the consequence of turning to Totalitarian ideologies like that is that They stagnate and become brittle Because there's no transformation in them anymore Because all of the people inside of them have decided that transformation is unnecessary and so they become increasingly outdated and corrupt and then that's the first step on the way to having everything fall apart in the most horrible possible way and that plays out at the state level just like it plays out at the individual level Now, Dostoevsky criticized utopianism and it's, it's brilliant, his, his formulation, so I'm going to read it to you. In short, one may say anything about the history of the world. Anything that might enter the most disordered imagination. The only thing one can't say is that it's rational. The very word sticks in one's throat. And indeed, this is the odd thing that is continually happening. There are continually turning up in life, moral and rational persons. Sages and lovers of humanity. Who make it their object to live all their lives as morally and rationally as possible. To be, so to speak, a light to their neighbors. Simply in order to show them that it is possible to live morally and rationally in this world. And yet we all know that these very people sooner or later have been false to themselves. Playing some queer trick, often a most unseemly one. Now I ask you. What can be expected of man, since he is a being endowed with such strange qualities? Shower upon him every earthly blessing, drown him in a sea of happiness so that nothing but bubbles of bliss can be seen on the surface Give him economic prosperity such that he should have nothing else to do but sleep, eat cakes, and busy himself with the continuation of his species And even then out of sheer ingratitude, sheer spite, man would play you some nasty trick, he would even risk his cakes and would deliberately desire the most fatal rubbish, the most uneconomical absurdity, simply to introduce into all this positive, good sense, his fatal, fantastic element. It's just his fantastic dreams, his vulgar folly that he will desire to retain, simply in order to prove to himself, as though that were so necessary, that men still are men and not the keys of a piano which the laws of nature threaten to control completely, so completely, that one will be able to desire nothing but by the calendar. So, clearly, that's Dostoevsky's criticism of materialistic determinism, right? Which he felt as a spiritual threat, fundamentally, its proposition being that animals and human beings were deterministic machines. It's a Newtonian worldview. And that because of that, everything could be calculated and planned ahead of time, because it could be predicted and measured. And that is not all. Even if man really were nothing but a piano key, even if this were proved to him by natural science and mathematics, even then he would not become reasonable, but would purposely do something perverse out of simple ingratitude, simply to gain his point. And if he does not find means, he will contrive destruction and chaos, sufferings of all sorts, only to gain his point. He'll launch a curse upon the world. And as only man can curse... It's his privilege and the primary distinction between him and other animals, maybe by his curse alone he will attain his object and convince himself that he's a man and not a piano key. If you say that all this too can be calculated and tabulated, chaos and darkness and curses, so that the mere possibility of calculating it all beforehand would stop it all and reason would reassert itself, then man would purposely go mad in order to be rid of reason and gain his point. I believe in it, I answer for it, for the whole work of man really seems to consist in nothing but proving to himself every minute that he's a man and not a piano key It may be at the cost of his skin It might be by cannibalism And this being so Can one help being tempted to rejoice that it has not yet come off and that desire still depends on something we don't know You will scream at me That is, if you condescend to do so That no one's touching my free will That all they are concerned with is that my will should of, should of itself, of its own free will Coincide with my own normal interests With the laws of nature and arithmetic Good heavens gentlemen, what sort of free will is left when we come to tabulation and arithmetic? When it will all be a case of twice two makes four Twice two makes four without my will As if free will meant that So, what's his point? Well, it's sort of a Garden of Eden point. You know, what are people like? Imagine you could reconstruct a paradise on Earth. You know, hypothetically, that's what everyone wants. We could go live in the paradise, and that would be the end of the problem. We'd all live happily ever after. But, in the original paradise story, that's what people were provided with. The first thing they did when they were put there was to do the one thing that they were told not to do that would bring it all crashing down, and that was immediately what they did. And so Dostoevsky's story is actually a retelling of that idea. The idea was that that people aren't like the utopians think. We don't want it easy, we don't want it comfortable, we don't want it good, and the reason for that is we'd be bored stiff. And so that if anybody ever did put us in the kind of nursery that would require us never to exert any effort to do anything at all whatsoever ever again Even if it meant going insane, we'd destroy it And then he takes that further, he says, and that's a good thing Kierkegaard, writing earlier, about 40 years earlier, said something quite similar It is now about four years ago that I got the notion of wanting to try my luck as an author I remember it quite clearly. It was on a Sunday. Yes, that's it, a Sunday afternoon. I was seated, as usual, out of doors at the cafe in the Fredericksburg garden. I had been a student for half a score of years. Although never lazy, all my activity, nevertheless, was like a glittering inactivity, a kind of occupation for which I still have a great partiality, and for which perhaps I even have a little genius. I read much, spent the remainder of the day idling and thinking, Or thinking and idling, but that was all it came to. So there I sat and smoked my cigar until I lapsed into thought. Among other thoughts, I remember these. You are going on, I said to myself, to become an old man. Without being anything, and really, without undertaking to do anything. On the other hand, wherever you look about you in literature and in life, you see the celebrated names and figures, the precious and much-heralded men who are coming into prominence, and are much talked about, the many benefactors of the age who know how to benefit mankind by making life easier and easier. Some by railways, others by omnibuses and steamboats, others by the telegraph, others by easily apprehended comendiums and short recitals of everything worth knowing. And finally, the true benefactors of the age who make spiritual existence in virtue of thought easier and easier, yet more and more significant. And what are you doing? Here my soliloquy was interrupted. My cigar was smoked out and a new one had to be lit. So I smoked again, and then suddenly this thought flashed through my mind You must do something, but inasmuch as with your limited capacities it will be impossible to make anything easier than it has become, you must, with the same humanitarian enthusiasm as the others, undertake to make something harder. This notion pleased me immensely, and at the same time it flattered me to think that I, like the rest of them, would be loved and esteemed by the whole community for when all combine in every way to make everything easier there remains only one possible danger namely that the ease becomes so great that it becomes altogether too great then there is only one want left, though it is not yet felt want when people will want difficulty out of love for mankind and out of despair at my embarrassing situation seeing that I had accomplished nothing and was unable to make anything easier than it had already been made, and moved by a genuine interest in those who make everything easy, I conceived it as my task to create difficulties everywhere.
0: In this video, Jordan Peterson explains how people become jealous of others who are succeeding in life.
1: Increasingly disaffected by it, and you know, it's not difficult to understand that. You know perfectly well that what happens to you if you're Working away, you think diligently and properly, and nothing is going your way, and some other son of a bitch is just flourishing like mad beside you, that that's going to make you vengeful and, and irritated and anxious and angry and, and homicidal for that matter, and it doesn't take very long before people reach that stage, at least not in their fantasies. Now, the story says, and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And what that meant is he's angry, and his face changes to indicate that. So he's got this continual look of perpetual disaffectation and anger on his face because things aren't going well for him. So that's fine. So then he goes and has a chat with God because he's not very happy about the whole situation. And I think people do that all the time, too, even if they don't necessarily formulate it in those terms. It's like they're thinking... Well, what's the nature of reality? I'm busting myself in half here, trying to make things work properly, and nothing's going well. It's like, what kind of stupid universe is that? And for all intents and purposes, that's a colloquy with God. Because you don't start thinking about the ultimate fabric of reality without bringing religious intuitions into it. You can't even ask such a question without acting in a quasi-religious manner. So this is what happens. It took me a long time to unpack this. So he goes and has a chat with Yahweh, with God. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and downcast? Surely, if you do right, you ought to hold your head high. Sin crouches at your door, lusting for you, yet you can master it. Now, that's very, very interesting. So I translated those, I got a translation of those lines from a guy named Miles from 1995. Now, so what happens is that Cain goes and has a chat with God about how things aren't going very well. And basically what he's trying to do is hold God to account for why he made such a stupid universe where everything keeps going wrong. And what God says to him is, why are you angry and downcast? If you do right, you ought to be able to hold your head high. So there's an intimation there that the reason that Cain is wandering around like this is because there's actually something he's doing that's not correct. It's not that the structure of reality's got a problem, it's that Cain has a problem. And God says, well, if you just do things properly, then you could stand up. You wouldn't have to be a defeated lobster all hunched over and aggravated. You could stand up and, you know, hold yourself properly and be, be, be thoroughly integrated in a proper manner with the way being is unfolding. And then he says, sin crutches at your door lusting for you, yet you can master it. Now, that's a very interesting line. So I found out that there's a... There's, an under, there's a metaphorical context within which those lines are uttered. And here's the context. So God basically tells Cain that sin, which is misbehavior, is a kind of personality. And the personality that he associates it with is something like a, a sexually aroused predatory cat. And he tells Cain that he's... No, Cain's in a house, and that thing is crouching at the door, and it's waiting to jump on it. And then he tells Cain that... That's a real threat and it's right there, but he could he could not have that happen if he wanted And there's a there's a whole set of inferences in there one inference is Cain invites it in Now you remember you may not remember you have to invite a vampire into your house It can't just come in of its own accord you have to open the door And so that's the first thing God tells Cain. It's like yeah, yeah sure things aren't going very well, but like that thing's at your door you invited it in, and you could master it if you want, but you chose not to. And then the next thing, the, the, the conceptualization of the sin as this sort of angry and lustful cat, there's a sexual connotation to it. And so the thing pounces on Cain and has its way with him. So there's an idea that there's a, like a quasi-sexual interaction between Cain and this force, so that it's a creative interplay. It's not only that he's dominated by the sin, it's that he brings it in and enters into a creative union with it and produces something out of the out of the mixture. And so, for example, when I was reading the Columbine kids' writings, it's like you can see exactly that in their behavior. It's like he knew perfectly well what he was up to. He knew perfectly well what he was inviting in. And he put his own extraordinarily creative twist on it. It wasn't just that he was possessed by an idea. He spent months planning with his horrible little compatriot about exactly how they were going to blow up the school and the town and they would have liked to have blown up the whole damn city that was part of their plan and exactly how they were going to turn that into a creative spectacle that would be covered by networks all over the land perfectly consciously, every single bit of this so they put their own twist on it as a consequence of being angry and resentful and unhappy you know. so anyways, so God tells Cain um, you know Why are you coming to complain to me? There's nothing wrong with reality. It's like you get your act together and behave properly. You can stand up, hold your head up high, and you don't have to let this thing that's tempting you have its way with you and enter into a creative union with it. You could just behave properly. And so Cain leaves, and then he's really annoyed. And the reason he's annoyed is because he's going in there hoping that he'll straighten God out with a little chat, and set reality straight, and basically what he finds out is that as far as God's concerned, the reason that all these terrible things are happening to him is because he's not anywhere near what he could be, and he's setting himself up for continual failure. And so that really annoys him. So now not only is he mad about the fact that he's failing, but he's even more mad because when he thought it through, he realized that it was actually his fault, and that the reason these things are happening to him is because he's not what he could be. So then you might think, well, what does he do as a consequence? You know, you could think, well, he could say, well, a little apology to God, and try to get himself on the right track and That isn't what happens at all He goes and kills Abel with a rock Now you think, well, why does he do that? Well, that's very complicated, it's partly Well, Abel is obviously God's favorite So he's doing everything he can to pull him down and you think, people do that all the time. Like If you're jealous of someone else's accomplishments, these things really play themselves out in junior high and high school, but they also play out in in adult life. You'll do everything you can to pull down the thing that's, you know, hovering above you and making you look bad From, from as a consequence of the reflection. It's easier to destroy the ideal than it is to try to live up to it. And people do that all the time. And then they're punishing each other for their virtues. And they do that because... Well, first of all, because they can pull down the ideal, and then they don't have the mirror that makes themselves uncomfortable But they can also do that as revenge against God It's like, well, if that's what you favor, and you're going to torture me to death Then I'll just destroy what you've brought up to be the best manifestation of what is at this point And then we'll just see who's, who's winning this war, who's winning the war of being And so that's what happens, he goes out and kills Abel And so, God comes along it's a terrible thing because it means he destroys his own ideal, but he's perfectly willing to pay that price as long as he can get revenge for his misery and his revenge on God. And it's interesting, too, because if you look at the writings of people who commit real atrocities, you can see that they've gone far beyond any desire for individual revenge. Like the kids that people, the Columbine kids shot up in the, in the high school, they didn't even necessarily have any grudge against those particular kids. It was like mayhem for mayhem's sake, and it was actually better if they shot someone that was innocent, because that was a lot more of a protest than shooting someone who was guilty. You know, if you're shooting someone who's bullied you, it's like that's just just justice. I mean, it's a warped and bent form of justice. But if you go into the high school and shoot someone who's been good to you, well then you're really making a statement about just what you think about the world. And if you're willing to blow your own head off afterwards, well, it's just that much more indication that you could say to hell with everything and that nothing is worth having. And that's, like, that's, a, that's, a, that's a demonstration of that mode of thinking right down to the bottom. So anyways, he goes out there and he kills Abel. Nietzsche said, Can one live it? All truths are bloody truths to me. And, and that's, an, that's one of the things I really like about reading The Existentialist too. It's not, there's no... There's no abstract disembodiment in their philosophy You see that the people who are writing as existentialists Are committed to what they say They, they, want, to, they want to enact what they say in the world it's, And it's romantic because it does involve emotions and motivation it's, it's, See, with reason alone, enlightenment view of reason was that reason and the passions were antagonistic, that all the passions could do would be to cloud reason and that it was reason's job to lift itself up above the body and the emotions and clarify the nature of the world. The the existentialists would deny that completely, they would say, no, 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 it's that the purpose, the, the, the appropriate mode of being is to act properly and rationality can be a guide to that, but can also, it can also deceive in all sorts of ways The the passions inform you. They don't cloud your reasoning. Although, of course, they can, because they tend to be kind of single-minded. You know, they can take you off course. But that doesn't mean that they're enemies of rational clarity per se. And when the existentialists write, you can tell they put their whole being into it. So it's, it's, it's gripping and passionate. The existentialists have also identified sort of classes of pathology that are unique in some ways they're outside the purview of standard psychology and psychiatry so you, you see often if you're looking at debates say between atheists and religious people one of the things that tends to set the atheists back on their heels is the observation that the religious people make that if there's no final meaning to anything then there's no meaning to anything and so that immediately elicits its a kind of nihilism it's like if nothing means anything, why do anything? And it's a reasonable argument because doing things requires effort. And you can say to yourself, well, why should I do X or Y, especially if X is difficult? If who the hell's gonna know in a thousand years, or who the hell's gonna know her in a hundred years, or why does it matter, anyways? And then the atheists will tie themselves up in knots trying to address that issue. But the existentialists take a different perspective. Nietzsche said, for example, he, was, he viewed the emergence of nihilism as a kind of cultural pathology. And so you remember, of course, that it was Nietzsche who said, God is dead. Right? You see that scrawled out in like, washroom graffiti from time to time. You know, it's, 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 it's like a truism, but that isn't what Nietzsche said. He said, God is dead and we have killed him and we'll never find enough water to wash away the blood. Which is a very, very different statement. It wasn't like he was proclaiming it triumphantly. It was more like a catastrophic loss of meaning You know, the sort of loss of meaning that the terror management theorists would say would would produce like a traumatic pathology Now what Nietzsche observed was that there, you know, of course you all know this to some degree that in the course of the development of, of scientific knowledge and rationality that a contradiction between our historical moral knowledge formulated in religious terms and our descriptive rational knowledge emerged conflict between science and religion Now part of that conflict is illusory, because the purpose of religion is to tell you how to act, and the purpose of science is to provide clear descriptions of, of, what, universally apprehensible reality. They're not working in precisely the same domains. It doesn't matter. Nietzsche's observation was this. He said, well, it's pretty clear that the scientific rationalists are going to demolish the substructure of Western religious belief, and then, of course, the substructure of that sort of belief all the way around the world. And there's going to be consequences to that. And he said there's going to be two consequences. And he predicted this, say, in 1850. It's something like 1850 in will to power. It's unbelievable. He said that what's going to happen in Europe is that there'll be the rise of socialist-slash-communist utopian schemes that will possess people, and that will produce a war. And the consequence of that war will be that hundreds of millions of people die. And he predicted that, like, 80 years before it happened. Well, maybe less, if you think of the Russian Revolution as a precursor of that, which Dostoevsky would have certainly viewed it as a precursor of that. Now, so there's totalitarianism on one side. That's, that's one of the dangers. Another danger is nihilism. And the nihilism emerges because you shatter the meaning structure within which action is conceptualized. And so those are like two emergent pathologies that threaten people. Now, if you talk to someone who's nihilistic, and rationalists are almost always nihilistic, especially if they're depressed, they'll say things like, like I already told you, what difference does it make anyways? Now Dostoevsky played out those themes, for example, in in a really, in, in a very, very powerful way in a number of his books, so the possessed, for example. It's funny, because Dostoevsky and Nietzsche wrote at the same time, and Dostoevsky wrote literature, and Nietzsche wrote philosophy, but they were doing exactly the same thing. In Dostoevsky's The Possessed, he talked about description of the Russian political, economic, ideological scene, and what he saw happening was that as people moved away from their enmeshment in a historically conditioned meaning system, so that was, say, Judeo-Christianity, that they started to become susceptible to utopian, rationalist, utopian ideologies it was so out with one belief system and in with another and the, the, the other was more dangerous because like the religious system sort of emerged from the bottom up and, and they were weird and mythical and difficult to understand from a rationalist perspective whereas the utopian schemes were rational constructions ideologies, very narrow, and they were just imposed on people so for the example the communists would say from each according to his ability to each according to his need which sounds wonderful, but if you put it into practice, it's like it's instantly genocidal so Nietzsche said, well, as the modern world suffers through the contradiction between scientific rationality and ritual religion historically conditioned the consequence of that is going to be that two pathologies will emerge One is reliance on totalitarianism And so I would say, to the degree that any of you are ideological Then you've succumbed to the one pole of of post-religious pathology And all you've done is replace adherence to one set of beliefs Even though religious beliefs are not precisely beliefs With another that's rationally constructed and incredibly dangerous He said, well, if it isn't going to be totalitarianism, it's going to be nihilism But the thing that's so interesting about the existentialists is they make a forthright claim that regardless of whether or not the fact that people will turn to those alternatives is a rational, can be rationalized. It makes sense that it would happen. It's still pathological. It's like like an a priori statement. So I could say, well, let's say you're nihilistic. You know, you, you lack, you have a lot of doubt about life's meaning and purpose. And it's like it's eating at you. It's, it's, it's a disease of the soul. And you come to me and you tell me 30 logical reasons why what you say has to be true. And I would say, those are excellent logical reasons, and you're making a very powerful argument. But it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. The fact that you're nihilistic means that you're infected with a pathology. And whether or not you can justify it rationally is completely irrelevant. All it means is that your rational mind is capable of spinning off a sequence of logical tricks. And the ultimate truth is, it's undermining your ability to live. And so it's wrong. Why is it wrong? I don't care why it's wrong. It's not relevant why it's wrong. What's relevant is you can't live like that. And that's an existential claim, because the existentialists are interested in a different kind of truth. They would say that a truth you cannot live is not true.
0: Feeling stressed, left without gravity, in an environment that gets more and more complicated and complex every day? Untangle your mind and go back to the roots of clear thinking. Get the original text of the Leviathan by Hobbes, the two treatises of government by Locke, the social contract by Rousseau, plus the U.S. Constitution from Pennsylvania, bound together into just one practical book. That's right. Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, and the U.S. Constitution bound together into just one practical book to keep your costs low.